You're listening to a sermon from First Family Church from the series, The King is in the King, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. I'd like to piggyback on what Josh mentioned earlier in reference to what happened last Sunday evening. In Las Vegas, uh, when at that concert, that shooter just opened fire and a massacre ensued. I don't know where you were when you heard the news. I didn't hear about it Sunday night. Um, I think Monday early I heard, and I didn't get to see Julie before we both left for work. And So it wasn't until Monday afternoon, I think, that uh, we chatted about it. I remember it distinctly in our kitchen, Julie looking at me and saying, uh, like, like, what's going on? Now, I think that question wasn't meant to be a theological one. Can everyone kind of agree with that? I don't think my wife, and I think I responded to her like, you know, that's a good question. Like, what is going on? I don't think we were actually wondering that from a factual theological standpoint. If you were to pin us down, we could probably show you in Scripture kind of how this is going to unfold. And we rejoice and take great comfort in God's sovereignty. So there's not an issue there. But have you ever had the moment when, though what you know in your head is solid and true... You're, like, you're just like, man, where is the place of sure-footedness? Can you not even go to a concert without worrying you might get snipered? I mean, can, can, can you not go to the grocery store or to the mall? Or can you not go on an errand? Or can your kid not walk to the park? I mean, where is the security that, that we feel like we should have in our country, in our neighborhoods? Like, what's, that's not what you meant. What's going on? What's happening? Is there any really place that's safe and secure? Has anyone else ever thought that? My hand's up. I mean, it used to be that when you'd travel or go somewhere, that your first thought was, will the plane crash? Now the first thought sometimes is, will the plane be blown up? And, and so I just was thinking this week, what, what would God say to us about this issue of security? And just as it is in God's timing, We come to a section of scripture in 2 Samuel, which I think speaks to that issue perfectly. I don't know if I would have thought the Davidic covenant spoke to our security as Gentiles. But I hope by the end of this morning, you'll you'll say, wow, I had no idea that that a covenant with David thousands of years ago speaks to my security needs today. So let's take our Bibles, open to 2 Samuel chapter 7, would you? Here's what I hope you'll see today. That then, now, and forever, God will keep his promise to his son. And all who are in his kingdom are securely kept and eternally blessed. This is kind of where we're headed. You're going to see this sentence multiple times today. And it's going to speak to our, our need and desire to know where our real security rests. So could you read this with me? You'll read it probably several times today. We're going to just make sure that we implant our feet right upon this truth. Say it with me, would you, church? Then, now, and forever, God will keep his promise to his son. And all who are in his kingdom are securely kept and eternally blessed. We're going to find this truth in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Which the tendency today may be for you to hear this somewhat cranally. 
maybe I can use the word scholarly. Maybe you're going to hear this message like, wow, this is a, it's an Old Testament survey class almost today. When that notion comes, try to, to resist that because there's much application to be gained from this. But I don't want to miss the point of the text and the point of the narrative either. So we're going to kind of wrestle through that. I will mention at some point there are the three elements that kind of comprise this covenant that I think help us understand it and get a, get a handle on it. I'll take one question after each of those elements. So we're going to kind of take our questions today kind of as we march through uh, David and the Lord's conversation. All right? We'll read the entire chapter first, kind of get our hands around it so some degree. Then we'll analyze the three elements. Uh, and I'll take a question after each one of those. And I think you'll see by the end of this that, that this really does address some of our security issues at times. You may find that we'll say some things today that will highlight truth, that will uncover things, that will make you kind of maybe wince or grimace or question. That's good. It may call to the surface our own insecurities. That'll be good as well, right? Amen, church? Go on, work with me a little better than that. Come on. It's good when God's Word brings our insecurities up, isn't it? Because then He can actually deal with real issues and problems and root uh, things. So let's dig into this beautiful chapter about God's unconditional commitment to the house of David and how it affects us now in 2017, and this will be fun. Let's read together uh, these 29 verses. Follow along with me as this chapter shows us where our true security comes from. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. There must have been some more conversation here. David must have laid out for Nathan that he wanted to build a a massive temple for the presence of the Lord. And so Nathan just says, Man, if that's in your heart, go do it. Now, understand something about this text chronologically. This is not a closed-fisted issue, and there are some who disagree on this, but I want to just kind of give one historical bit of information to you. Most believe that while this chapter comes in this order in the Scriptures, chapter 7, after they regain the ark and before some of their battles, the truth is this probably happened towards the end of David's life. I don't have a reason for why it's, other than the Lord's inspiration, why it's tucked in in this order in the Bible's narrative. But historically, uh, David didn't have a house of cedar built by some alliances with other nations until he was about 66, 68, 70 years old. It's after his house and his battles have been won. David has kind of fought through a lot of struggles and issues. Rest had finally come to the nation of Israel. And so while it's in this order scripturally, chronologically, this actually belongs towards the end of David's life. So he says to him in his old age, I want to build God a house. He deserves better than a tent. And Nathan's saying, if that's in your heart, go do it. Well, it appears that Nathan didn't really inquire of the Lord before he responded to David. And don't be too hard on him. If the king came to you and asked if he could do something, you'd probably be quick to try to say yes, wouldn't you? <laughs> you are not want to argue with the king or the president if you don't have to, right? But that night, it says the word of the Lord in verse 4 came to Nathan and Here's what the Lord says to Nathan that's different than really what David wanted to do. He said, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. What David felt was frustrating, God thought was quite appropriate. (laughs) At least at this point, right? Like, I've not asked for a house. I'm I'm not bothered. I'm not cooped up. (laughs) No HGTV needed for the divine one right now, right? He says, in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So he's saying, David, I'm not really asking for a house. The the insinuation, the ambiance is, hey, thanks, but no thanks. Verse 8, he says, here's what I want you to say to David instead. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Remember I told you two weeks ago that David's life really is a shepherd narrative? Here's more proof of that. It's the words that God uses initially and by choice to describe his entire life. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them and They may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges of my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Suddenly a shift is changing. Initially David said, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, David, actually I'm going to do something for you. He starts with the current scene. I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. And he moves now to this future scene. Watch what he says. Moreover, key word here, moreover. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Wow. I mean, David says, God, I want to build you a house. And the the nut graph is this. No, David, I'm going to build you a house. And what he's saying is this. You want to build me a structure to live in? I'm going to build you a dynasty. Man, what a a trade. It's not really a trade, I know. But at least in this moment of conversation, can you imagine being David? And you're offering to say, God, I want to build you a house for your presence. And God says, I'll tell you what, I'll I'll do better than that. I'll build you a dynasty with your name. This is, this is crazy. This is unbelievably gracious that God would respond in, 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 in such a way to say, you know what, David, I'm, I'm, I've not ever asked for a house. I'm not after a house. But my, I want my grace to be towards you and towards my people. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build you a house. Let's turn this thing around. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, watch how now he's going to fulfill verse 11. Verse 12 says, When your life's over, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I'll establish his kingdom. Now that sounds good right there, right? So there's a posterity in place. That's got to make David feel good, but watch what unfolds next. He shall build a house for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom. That's good there. Oh, so we get a house eventually for God's presence. Then there's a dynasty and a kingdom that develops. But watch this next word. Forever. First time in the chapter it's used. God is saying, David, I'm not just going to turn the table, so to speak, and build you a house, i.e. dynasty. I'm going to do it through your son. He'll build me a house. But I'm going to make your name last forever. Like, Well, this thing is getting intense. And notice God's not asking for, he's not asking for a condition here. This is one of the unconditional covenants of the Bible. God is simply stating, I will do this. 
He says, I'll be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you love how verse 16 ends? This is God speaking to Nathan, saying, David's house and throne and kingdom will be established forever. When at the beginning of chapter 7, David simply said, God, can I build you a house? And it ends at least halfway through with God saying, no, Dave, I'll build you a dynasty that will last forever. Wow. Man, God is so gracious, isn't he? And it wasn't like David made a deal. There's no conditions here. There's no if-then. God just said, David, I think instead of me getting the house from you, let me make you a dynasty in a house. Well, David hears this from Nathan. And in verse 18, he goes in and sits before the Lord. And I love his response. He begins in verse 18 by saying, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. By the way, do you see verse 19? It looks back to the past that God's promise has always been to raise up a house forever. And it says it will be to the future. This is instruction for mankind. That's a very important verse showing us God's heart has always been to raise up his kingdom and that this is instruction for future generations. So there's something far more important. Watch this, church. Listen very carefully to this. There's something far more important than just David's name, and there's something far more important than your name and my name and this church's name. It's God's name. It's God's kingdom. It's always been his intention, and it will be instruction for us in the future. God is paramount. David's realizing this, and so he says, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. David doesn't take any credit here. He says it's all because of you to make your servant know it. And so therefore, verse 22, you are great. Who does you refer to? The Lord God Almighty. You are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you according to all that we've heard with our ears and And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. I mean, who is like the Lord is what he's saying. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people. How long, church? Forever in your people. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. This references back to what Nathan told David the day before. What you'll find in this prayer is quite interesting. David doesn't make anything up. He he doesn't kind of bring his own request. David brings to the Lord, watch this, this will seem a little odd. He brings to the Lord what the Lord already told him through Nathan. (laughs) It's like if God gave Bob a prayer list, and then Bob said, great, God, I have a prayer list for you. And he gives it back to God. <laughs> That's what David does. He just simply repeats back to God what God told Nathan. Like, Lord, you've promised this. You've said this. So 
Here's my prayer request. Which is another way in our culture of saying this, you know, your best prayer life is going to be rooted in God's word. If you want to know God's will, check what he's already told us. Amen, church? How should you pray? Check what he's already told us. Let's plant our feet in what God has said. Sometimes we bring our own wishes and desires, and I don't know that's always bad or evil. I admit that. But sometimes we can get off on a rabbit trail with our own best life now scenarios. What God has already told us, let's just stick to praying this as his will. Amen? So anyway, here's what David does, and he credits God. He's all about God's character and God's commitment. So he says, fulfill this. Verse 26, your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue, how long? Forever, before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is what's theologically known as the Davidic covenant. It's, it's the beginning of it, the, the first announcement of it. It's also found in 1 Chronicles 17. It's referenced several times in the New Testament. But it's really the, the outline of and the conversation that contains what we know as the Davidic covenant. God's unconditional promise to David that his kingdom would last forever. So how do we get our hands around that? How does that speak to our security issues? There's three elements to this covenant that I want to notice in this chapter. I'll do this somewhat quickly. You may want to take a screenshot of the, of the, of the slides or just jot these notes down on your app or on some hard copy paper there. But I think there's, first of all, a historical reality. Let's tackle this first and take one question, can we? This is not hard to understand. The historical reality of this covenant is actually seen in David's son Solomon. Many of you know that in 1 Kings chapter 5, as well as 1 Chronicles 22, it's recorded that Solomon was the one who actually built the first temple. This is what God is referring to beginning in about verse 12. You look there with me, 1 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, David, when you die... <laughs> I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. I'll establish his throne forever. Now, even as you read through about the one who sins, how God's going to discipline him, but he won't take his steadfast love away, all of this, I think, historically, and we would say this word, immediately refers to Solomon. David had multiple sons, by the way, from multiple wives. Solomon was the one who inherited the kingdom and was the one, was the one who really um, experienced the greatest period of rest from, from the enemies of the Lord. He built the Lord a temple. He was the wealthiest of the king and probably, to be frank with you, was the most famous of the kings. Visitors from far and wide came to see Solomon. He was the wisest of the kings. And so in many ways, historically, the immediate fulfillment of what God promised in his covenant was seen in his son Solomon. But Solomon didn't stay true to the Lord, did he? He let his wives and concubines, which, by the way, he gathered more in his life than David ever did. So let you know the 
The sins of the fathers does go on sometimes in the next generation, doesn't it? Those propensities and those weaknesses and those areas of, of, of sinfulness. I mean, Solomon, his dad's list was nothing compared to his. But it was also his downfall. In fact, in 1 Kings, here's what the Lord says to Solomon. This is 1 Kings 11. Notice how God's promise, though fulfilled historically in Solomon, this covenant's going to have a problem if we can't figure out what to do with Solomon now. Watch this. The Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I command you. In other words, you're building all kinds of idols and, and worship places to the gods of all your wives. And he's turning from the Lord. He says this, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Now, wait a second. Didn't God say, give it to his offspring forever? We've got a problem here. It's okay to say that as you study your Bible. It's okay to ask honest questions. You promised David his offspring forever, but now you're saying you're going to tear the kingdom from you. You'll give it to your servant? Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days. Okay? So the covenant's still intact, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So if you follow the scriptures, Rehoboam becomes king. Jeroboam's, of course, in the north. Uh, those ten tribes are eventually lost. Rehoboam eventually loses the kingdom as well. And, and Israel becomes a mess. There's very few, if any, obedient kings once the kingdom is split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There's idol worship across the territory. What follows is the Assyrian captivity, then the Babylonian captivity. You begin to wonder, man, we can hardly find any tribes. What happened to Israel? And then you start thinking, but I thought God said David's throne would be established forever. There, something's got to give here, church. What's going on? What you're going to find is that God is fulfilling this covenant through David's line, yes, but the real ultimate king is not Solomon. That's the historical immediate fulfillment, but the eventual ultimate fulfillment is actually Jesus Christ, who, by the way, I'll give it to you biologically as well, who doesn't come through Solomon's line. Now, he is through Nathan's line, which he's the third of Bathsheba's son. Solomon is one of Bathsheba's son as well, but if you were to trace the biological line, you'll find that Mary's father, I think his name is either Heli or Helial, he's actually a descendant of Nathan, David's son, not Solomon. So though the kingdom is torn from Solomon after Solomon is, um, when his sons take it over, the kingdom still goes on through Nathan, another one of David's son, and that's the line through which the Messiah actually comes. Biologically. We're not the only ones to know that. There are prophets and Old Testament, quote-unquote, preachers who are aware of that too. There was what we call a remnant. And they knew that the, the covenant, though historically was about Solomon building the temple and being fulfilled in that way, that there was something greater and later, something more ultimate than just Solomon, that it was the Messiah. Because notice how the prophets, notice how the remnant always trusted that it wasn't just about a historical element, but there was a there was an eternal element going on. This is the second aspect. Before we get there, let's see if any questions have come in first. Any questions about the historical element Solomon? I doubt there is. I've got zero in the back. Okay. And I realize this is, is, this is going to be a little cranial, but just hang with me, okay? So Solomon fulfills it immediately. 
And yet when the kingdom's torn, God's covenant isn't nullified. It isn't abandoned because it's working now through Nathan, another one of David's sons, for the ultimate Messiah. And this is what many of the prophets, this is what the remnant always knew, that the eternal reality of the Davidic covenant is actually Jesus Christ. He's the quote-unquote son of David who will sit on the throne of David forever. He's the way the word forever is now fulfilled in this chapter. In fact, let me show you four scriptures that I think will walk you through God's progressive work in Israel's life, showing that it, it starts in 2 Samuel 7 with this immediate fulfillment by Solomon, but then it shows up to be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Look at this. Here's Psalm 89. God says, I'll not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to whom? He's referencing here the Davidic covenant. I'll not lie to David. I will fulfill my covenant. I think it goes on to say this. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. So here he is in Psalms writing this. And yet we can see that the kingdom from a physical standpoint, from the earthly king's perspective, man, we've got some issues. There just aren't any obedient kings. What's happening? Well, God's going to keep his covenant, though. He's going to keep his promise. We also see in, I think it's uh, Jeremiah 23. Can we find that verse, Evan? Here's what the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah. These are now prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, who are speaking to the nations of Judah and Israel about how will this Davidic covenant unfold? How is God going to keep his word? Look what he says here. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for whom? It's a, it's a, it's a hearken back to second, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, he shall reign as what? So a king is coming who will be on the throne forever. Okay, so you can see the hope welling up inside the, the remnant and the prophets, people like Zechariah, Anna, Simeon. Okay, so, so God has not forgotten what he promised. No, he's going to raise up a righteous branch for David. He'll reign as king. He'll deal wisely. He'll execute justice and righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell, what's the next word? Securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Say it, church. The Lord is our righteousness. A blatant statement that the ultimate king of second, excuse me, 1 Samuel 7 is actually Christ the Messiah. So the whole word in this chapter, forever, by the way, it's mentioned seven times. When you read that in this chapter, you've got to realize, okay, so the immediate fulfillment is Solomon. But the ultimate fulfillment, the forever aspect, is only seen in Jesus Christ. He's the righteous branch. He's really what brings our secure dwelling. Look what it says in Isaiah. You're more familiar with this passage here. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On thee, say it with me, throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and how long? This is the prophecy of the king that is to come. And he's going to sit on the throne of David. And how's this going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me jump to one in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. Here again, the prophets, God's remnant. I mean, the nation itself has just gone crazy. They're astray. They're, they're away from the Lord. But there is that, that few that have held on to God's promise. They know that God will keep his word as given to David in 1 Samuel 7. Here's what Luke 1 records for us. 
The angel says to Mary, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, say it with me, the throne of his father David. I guarantee you Mary thought, 1 Samuel 7, Davidic covenant. God made a promise, he's now keeping it. And she probably thought back through hundreds of years of, of disobedient kings. Moments when she thought, man, is that ever going to come true? Where's the security we're looking for? We can't seem to find leadership that really ever works to fulfill this promise. What's happening? Because it's not for them to fulfill it. It's God's gracious zeal that will fulfill it. And he fulfilled it in Jesus Christ, the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. Watch this. There will be no end. That's the same as the word forever, isn't it? So church, understand that 1 Samuel 7. I keep saying 1 Samuel, don't I? You're welcome to correct me next time. Just say, it's 2nd, Todd. I appreciate that. It's 2nd Samuel 7. 2nd Samuel 7 really is all about the Messiah. It's got some immediate aspects, yes. But its eventual ultimate fulfillment rests in Jesus Christ. And it's blatantly spelled out in the scriptures. So we're not making this up. This is what the prophets and the remnant all knew and looked forward to. So, so do you see this happening? Then, now, and forever. So then refers to the immediate aspect of Solomon. But it seemed, at least apparently, to be breaking down. But actually, it wasn't. God was still keeping his word. And so we begin to see that, that he will keep his promise to his quote-unquote son. And all who are in his kingdom, they will dwell securely. They're eternally blessed. But we begin to realize, oh, so it's not just about which earthly king then can do their job best. It's about... God's son, the the heavenly king who will do the job perfectly. So suddenly we begin to realize, oh, the Davidic covenant isn't just about an earthly king gaining rest for a single nation. It's about a heavenly king giving rest and security for all of God's people. We're going to see that unfold in element three. Let's see. Any questions on element two? Besides, can you get your book straight? I, I got that question right. I'll work on that, okay? No questions on element two. Here's the last spiritual, excuse me, the last reality of this covenant. There's a physical reality, or we would call a historical one. There's an eternal one. But then there's a spiritual reality, which is what I just alluded to, that if it's really about a heavenly king providing security and blessing eternally for for his people who are those people the bible specifically shows this covenant being fulfilled in both jew and gentile in fact i would make a case that this may be what david is referencing in verse 21 of chapter 7 i can't prove this so i'm going to hold this opinion here pretty loosely okay But I think, verse 21, when he says, because of your promise, which I think refers back to what Nathan told him that God had said, and according to your own heart, I tend to think David there knows that it's always, he knew it had always been God's heart to call together people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Jew and Gentile. I can't prove that, but I want to say David there is understanding this covenant is about more than just Israel. Even though in the covenant, he talks a lot about God and then, of course, God's people. I think in his mind, he knows, yeah, but this is bigger than just us. 
Now, whether or not the, the kings that followed David got that, the people wandered and God was involved in judgment and captivity and exile with his people, there's a lot happening. But when Christ came on the scene and fulfilled the covenant eternally, he was the son of David who sat on the throne, who sits on the throne even now. What did that do then for those who weren't Jews? Did God really fulfill this for more than just the nation of Israel? I say to you, yes, based on the following scriptures. Acts chapter 15 is where I'll start. Here, James and Peter are meeting, other church leaders are meeting, and they're discussing what should we require of Gentiles who want to become a Christian, who want to follow the Lord? Should they get circumcised? Should they have to follow the the old Jewish rules? Or what can we say to them? They've heard the gospel. He's speaking there of of Peter's visit to Cornelius. And then another work of of God among the Gentiles. What's happening here? And so James says this. This is is quite intriguing. He speaks of Peter. He says, Peter, or Simeon, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. I think that's referencing his visit to Cornelius. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Wait, wait, wait. So James is saying that the prophets have foretold that God would save Gentiles. That he would, he would give those who weren't physical Jews security and safety from a spiritual point of view. He would make them partakers of the Davidic covenant? Watch this. The words of the prophets agree with this, saying, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David. And notice here, he does not say house. I think it's James's way of saying, you know what, what we once knew as a house has actually become a tent. It's just in almost ruins. That's why he uses the word rebuild. I think even the word for fallen may be the word breaches, referencing the divided kingdom. So James here is alluding to this fact, you know what, yeah, it's a rough day for Jews right now. But what we're seeing in the Gentiles coming to Christ, what we're seeing is God keeping his word that he gave to David when he said, I'll rebuild the tent of David. I'll rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. He goes on to say this, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Who's the remnant of mankind? Watch the rest of the verse. And all the whom? That's you. (laughs) If there's a Jew here, Hear this well, okay? <laughs> but for most of the folks in the world, we're the Gentiles. We're the ones who heard second, so to speak. Jew first and also the Greek. And guess what? But it's always been God's heart to make sure that His Davidic covenant promised in Second Samuel 7 wasn't just about the nation of Israel. It's always his heart to say people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And so as he restores it and rebuilds it and fulfills it through Christ, the eternal uh, factor in this covenant, guess what? That's how the remnant of mankind, Gentiles, are called by his name. And this is what God says who makes these things known from the Lord. Are you glad the Davidic covenant was fulfilled by Christ? Because at that moment, man, the doors are open. In that first century, Gentiles become uh, aware of the gospel. And that's the way it's always, that's what it's always been on God's heart. By the way, it's not the first time Gentiles have come to Christ. We see it all through the Old Testament. Rahab, Ruth, 
By the way, these women are all, many of them are in the line of Christ in the book of Matthew. (laughs) So the Davidic covenant, while aimed immediately historically at Solomon and that immediate nation to give them rest during his reign, finds its eternal fulfillment in Christ and watch this, and beyond national Israel, it finds its fulfillment in God's people worldwide from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. This is reconfirmed in Acts 13. This is out of sequence chronologically, but watch what Acts 13 says. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. And he's speaking of what God's saying to his son, Jesus. He says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of whom? David. Back to 2 Samuel 7. He goes on to say this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, who does this man refer to? Jesus Christ, the one who's going to be in the the line of David who will take those blessings. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. Everyone. Who's included in everyone? Jew and Gentile. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now see, that's the kind of security I'm after. All the sins that want to hold me down and keep me back, strangle me, choke me, and eventually kill me, all the sins that want to ride on my life, you deserve hell. God says that through Christ, I can be forgiven and freed from those. And that was long ago promised. One of those was even in 2 Samuel 7 when God said, No, David, don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And it will be ultimately fulfilled in Christ who will bring around his throne people far more than just national Jews. Man, praise God for his wisdom and sovereignty, isn't it? There's more going on here than just the historical element. There's the eternal element. And then there's the the spiritual element. That through Christ, both Jew and Gentile can dwell securely together. You see, this is why I say to you, the answer to our nation's racism isn't a political person. It's the gospel. For it's by the power of the gospel that Jew and Gentile dwell together securely. It's by the power of the gospel that we can be appropriately colorblind and yet appropriately color grateful. It's by the power of the gospel that we're not worried about what we see on the outside, external factors. Man, we're going to the heart. That's what matters. And this is only done by Jesus Christ. So this is why we say, then, historically, now, Jew and Gentile, and forever, eternally, God will keep his promise to his son. And was that son immediately Solomon? Yes, to David it was. But ultimately it was Jesus Christ. But God will keep his promise. And all who are in his kingdom, the everyone of Acts 13, will will have security and blessing. So when you wonder like, man, what's happening in our country? What's going on here? Is there any place where there's a sure-footedness? Where can I place my foot so that there's 
you know, I know what's going on, or there's security. Finding that apart from Christ is impossible. But you can find that in Christ, and it roots all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, when God unconditionally promised David that through his line he would raise up a son who would reign forever and bless everyone who calls on his name. So I can say to you assuredly, church, listen very carefully, you as a believer are recipients of the Davidic covenant and all of its security and promises. Hallelujah. Now, to be an honest pastor with you intellectually, I need to say one more thing to you. At this point, there are differing views on how this unfolds eschatologically. In other words, how this unfolds in the end times. There are, it concerns timing. So Christ is the king when he arose from the grave by the power of the Father. He ascended to the uh, throne in heaven. He sits as king. So there's no doubt that Jesus is king. Amen? There's no doubt that Jesus Christ is king. Amen? Amen. Let's hear that loudly. I want the the tape to make sure they pick that up. The video's got to get that, right? And we, we affirm that. But the timing of that truth can be disagreed upon. There are those who would say, you know, he he ascended, he's king now. I would agree with that. There are those who would say, well, he's king now, but we don't see that kingdom in its full force until the millennium. And so there's this waiting until he comes, and then there's the millennium. Some would say, well, the millennium's in, in place and in process now. It's more of a kind of a symbolized millennium. It's a kingdom, but it's not going to be in a physical way. Those are all things you can debate and discuss over coffee and They're not going to determine if you go to heaven or hell. Amen? In fact, we would say at our church, even among our elders and our leaders, we have folks who are are more of the uh, amil version at times. They would say the the millennium is more of a symbolized, kind of figurative expression going on right now, and Christ is king. Amen? There are those who say, no, there's a period we're waiting through, and then Christ will come, and there'll be a literal thousand-year reign. He'll be sitting in Jerusalem. They'll come down from heaven. He'll reign in the physical way. Amen to that. We would all say we're pro-coming though, right? He is coming. He is king. And how this works out, uh, God knows the details. We're we're not afraid to take a position. I just want to make sure you understand something. None None of those differing views nullify or necessarily mean that we don't believe all of God's people are recipients of the Davidic covenant. But we might say this, when we are recipients of its fullest expression may be up for debate to some people. But not a single one of us will say, you know what? The Davidic covenant, man, it's just for national Israel and no one else gets a benefit. That's not true. Every single believer benefits from the security and, and soul safety provided by the Davidic covenant. So today, you should be deeply grateful for God's intervention in David's life in 2 Samuel 7. That though Nathan said, man, go do what's in your heart to do. God interrupted him that night and said, Nathan, actually, tell David, I don't want a house from him. I'm going to build him a dynasty. And through that dynasty, the Messiah will come. He will reign forever. And because he will reign forever, both Jew and Gentile can dwell securely. Man, thank God for the Davidic covenant. There's more I want to say, but I'm out of time. So let's just wrap this up. Can you think back to where you were when you heard the news of Las Vegas? And maybe you thought what my wife thought and what we wondered. Man, what's happening? 
Let your theology, let your theology, 2 Samuel 7, let that dictate and direct your emotions. I don't think you can necessarily stop feeling that way. We say this at our home, and I've told you this for years. I don't think you should try to eliminate emotions. I think you should just make sure you translate them. And so when you're wondering, like, man, what's happening in our country, our world? What's happening? At that moment, just remember 2 Samuel 7, that God has made a promise, and he has kept it and will keep it. And it's all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure if your eternal security is, is in the right hands, I'm not going to direct you to, to a church's name, perhaps, or a, a parent's name, or a celebrity or a star. I'm going to direct you to one person, Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled all of God's promises. He is the real king. He's on the throne of David. He's working everything to the end game of glory to God. That's where our security is. It's in Jesus Christ. I would just urge anyone here who's kind of hoping they can find their sure-footedness in something earthly and physical. Instead, trust Jesus Christ, the Son of David and the King of heaven and earth as your only means of soul security, okay?